Hello and welcome to another edition of the Deal Flow Show. I'm JP Maroney, your host, along with my co-host for this and many episodes, Mr. Paul Nicolini, Regional Director here at Harbor City Capital. On today's episode, we've got a very special guest. His name is Bill Glass from Gentry Mills Capital. And uh, you've got a background with this guy. I'm going to let you maybe do lead us off on some questions. And I'm excited about getting to know you and uh, especially getting to know your family and and the, the son that came on. Uh, there at the end and said that we had enough ugly on the screen already and we didn't need anyone else. So. <laughs> but I think he was talking to me. Uh, don't we don't mean... know that exactly. but <laughs> All right. So let's jump into the questions and get to know, sure. uh, let our guests get to know sure, uh, Billy sure. a little bit better. You know, Billy, we can start right in with telling us about Gentry Mills Capital. Sure. I mean, Gentry Mills Capital is something that I formed back in 1997 uh, as a consulting entity um, when I was sort of basically working as a wholesaler for other uh, work for other people for many years. And I put together this company, Gentry Mills Capital. Um, and it was 96 or 97, Becky, I can't remember, but it was, I think it was 97. And we formed it to consult with people because I was fully licensed at that time. And we had to have something for our outside business activities. We changed the name in 2006 to Gentry Mills Capital when we went into the full-time deal business and putting together our own offerings. And so that's the, a little bit of background about Gentry Mill. Paul may know this, but I, I've got curiosity questions because sure. I read here background NFL. I want to get into that in just a few minutes and talk about maybe even some of the parallels. But how did you actually get started in the capital markets? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, uh, I, I went to Baylor University and I played for a, a couple of years at Cincinnati after I got out of uh, um, being at Baylor and playing football at Baylor. And I went to work directly for a man by the name of Hank Dickerson in here in Dallas and uh, gosh, in 1981. And, you know, at that time there were two large real estate firms in Dallas, Hank Dickerson and company, who I was very fortunate to get to go to work for and Henry S. Miller. And so Mr. Dickerson taught me the real estate brokerage business. And while we were, you know, involved in that, and I was learning the real estate brokerage business, I became really close to Mr. Dickerson, and he taught me about partnerships, putting together partnerships. And, you know, I would take a property, say, you need to go show this to this buyer and that buyer, and, and uh, you know, as the market sort of got worse, he said, you know, that's a great property, nobody's interested right now, but we should buy it. I said, that's a great idea, Mr. Dickerson, but we don't have any money. <laughs> And so we started, he said, look, I'll, we'll put together a Texas partnership, a Texas joint venture. And so those were the old general partnerships. And so we started putting joint ventures together and Hank taught me how to do that. I became very interested and actually left Mr. Dickinson in 1983 and started my own company to put together a joint ventures called BGI Commercial Real Estate. And I put together about 50 land syndications and sold those to a public company. And after that, I was really hooked on uh, raising capital and syndication business in the securities industry. So that's 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 how we started. And so what kind of investments are, are involved or underneath the Gentry Mills Capital? Well, we've really sort of focused on hospitality, although we have a wide ranging real estate background and uh, office and industrial and triple net lease uh, warehouses. Um, but we've really focused since 1986 on hospitality here at Gentry Mills Capital. We really 
there's a lot of things about hospitality that we really like, uh, and that is that we can change the rates on our rooms, on our what we're selling, if you will, you know, as many times a day as we would like. I mean, we can bring the rate up or down to capture business if uh, the market is soft. We can lower the rate and capture more business. And if you have a very tight market, we're fortunate because we work with Hilton and Marriott. We get a lot of advice from them every day uh, on what we should do with, uh, you know, our room rates. And obviously they're interested in making franchise fees and uh, the better, the more they can increase our revenue, the higher their franchise fees are. And so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great marriage. It uh, really works well for us. Bill, you mentioned Hilton Hotels. Um, how, did you, how did you get involved with Hilton? And then also as a two-part question, how do you acquire your hotels? Well, the way we originally got involved with Hilton was that we, we basically had some partners that we had worked with in the previous life in the hospitality industry, we had provided some capital to them when I was working for another firm. And uh, that was the old American Liberty, American Liberty Hospitality um, uh, firm in Houston. And we started working with American Liberty Hospitality and they have a long-standing history with Hilton Corporation. Um, uh, Nick Massad, their president, uh, uh, went to the Hilton College of Hospitality there at the University of Houston. Uh, and a uh, very big donor uh, to that, that school of hospitality. And uh, we did our first deal on the west side of Houston uh, at I-10 in Derry Ashford, which is a 192-room Hilton um, hotel. Um, and uh, uh, we, we built that, that property uh, right before another hurricane that was uh, <laughs> coming to that area, built it. Um, we had minimal damage, uh, and, uh, we had a great success story with that property, but that's how we got involved with Hilton and, uh, you know, and, and through a developer relationship with the developer, that's the way we source our properties. We work with developers, uh, many developers that we've worked with in the past come to us and say, we have this project or that project. And that might have a Hilton project or a Marriott project or a Hyatt place project. And um, uh, and so that's basically how we we built our relationship with the different flags. So are you you're the sponsor in the deal, and then are you taking carry? Is that how you've built your business model, or is there? In the beginning, when we were working with like Nick and uh, some of the other developers we worked with, we took a carried interest in the program, uh, and then a lot of uh, in several occasions we've just gone into the property ourselves just directly. We bought the, the land and built the property from the ground up and we were the, the franchise here. You have a background in the NFL, uh, a history there. Can you talk a little bit about, just kind of give us an encapsulated view of that career and maybe a couple of highlights if you don't mind and then I have a follow-up question to that. Sure, well, my career was very short. Um, I grew up uh, in the NFL because my father played for the Cleveland Browns and Detroit Lions. Uh, he ended his career, he played for 11 years in the league and he ended his career at, at Cleveland. And so as a boy, I was in an NFL locker room and that was always my goal to, to be a player at some point, you know, if I could possibly do it. And so my goal was from a very young age, I was to, to, to play in the NFL. And so uh, I did that. I was um, drafted in 1980, uh, I, I suppose, 1980, and played in 81 and part of 82. Or I played in 80 and 81, and that was my last year. Got hurt, 
but uh, my dad calls my career a cup of tea. So, it, uh, you know, <laughs> very short. I went up there and got, I made the team, played played for uh, a full season and part of another season. And then, then I got cut and, um, you know, got got back to Dallas and uh, went to work for Mr. Dickerson in real estate business. The, the journey though, because even as short as the career might have been, obviously you set a goal, you went after it, you achieved that goal. Um, no fault of your own, I'm assuming you got hurt. Uh, but the question is, do you see for yourself or what you've seen in the league over the years parallels that have maybe taught you lessons or prepared you in any way for the deal-making process that, and business-building process that you've now gone through as a professional career? I don't think there's any doubt. I mean, my, you know, the coaches that I played for, you know, taught me things that were incredible. I, you know, we, we were coming up, uh, we, we were going to play, if we had the chance to play in the NFL, it would be great. We might make a little bit of money, but not, nothing like the money that they're making today. And when my dad played, you know, he always had a job in the offseason. As I told you, JP, my dad was a minister, and he still is a minister. And so he did that in the off season. He went to seminary and then, and then uh, you know, he did his, his ministry work, built his ministry uh, over a period of 50 years. And so, you know, that in itself taught me a lot about hard work. And uh, my coaches, Grant Taft at Baylor would always tell me, you know, you find out who you are when adversity strikes. And so, you know, my career has been built on just uh, a long-term learning uh, experiences, you know, building relationships over a long period of time, telling the truth and, uh, you, know, you know, trying to be a purveyor of truth and not, you know, just um, uh, getting too hyped up with it, too involved with the deal and the hype of the deal uh, and just trying to do the best job we possibly can for everybody involved, the advisors that we work with, the investment people invest alongside of us, and and, and and you know the fundamentals, the blocking and tackling of reporting, and we really pride ourselves on how we report. We report every quarter, but through this COVID period, this period that we've had right now, we've been reporting weekly uh, to all of our limited partners and uh, keeping them apprised of what's happening with each property. So yeah, I think there's a great deal of parallel, JP, in the, in, uh, in the fact that you know. Uh, you learn your craft over a long period of time, and it's a great deal of fundamentals, and we're constantly learning uh, from the experiences that we've gone through and what we have, the things that are always coming up. We always know that there's a new learning experience that's coming up in the real estate business. Right now, we're going through something that's incredible in the, in the, the coronavirus is the COVID-19, which who could underwrite, you know, such a thing as this? And I could never imagine a black swan event like this. But here we are in the middle of it, in the midst of it, and we're getting to learn a lot again. I like your, your term, we're getting to learn a lot. I call those learning experiences myself as well. Um, as you said, this is unprecedented, an unprecedented historic worldwide global impact. Um, you mentioned that your coach, your coach at Baylor talking about you find out who you are when you're faced with adversity. Uh, obviously, this is a big deal. The hospitality industry, among a few others, have taken it really on the chin. Um, but my guess is, and, and I want to get your input on this, my guess is there's 
maybe a mixed feeling about this because there's what you're into in right now and then there's what's most likely going to follow over the next two or three or four years. Can you comment at all about how COVID has affected your deal flow or deal making process now and where you see this going in the real estate industry, especially in the hospitality industry over the next few years as we see this play out? Well, we, we've been really um, impressed with the wonderful attitude of our, our lenders, how well they've worked with us and how um, uh, really their great attitude in working with us uh, as we negotiate um, forbearance agreements. Uh, we think that this is, we really are excited about it because I've lived through the Graham Rubin Tax Reform Act in 86, you know, the downturn in 91, the downturn in 2000 and 2000, in 1996, and we had another one, a horrible one, the depression that people talk about in 2006 and seven, which was horrible. Um, and then, of course, you know, what we're going through right now. Um, so we think that there's going to be a great opportunity because of what's going on in, in the COVID with, with because of what's happening in all facets of real estate, we think at some point in time that attitude, the gracious attitude that we experienced with the lender is going to have to turn a little bit rougher because if we don't, if properties don't have the dollars to pay payments, ultimately after all the government stimulus runs out, the, the, the banks are going to have to take back some of these properties. So we think a great source of acquisition um, will be through the banks. We also think there will be a lot of uh, possible acquisitions through um, the REITs, uh, some of these various owners of real estate uh, that are going to have to offload you know, a great uh, number of properties. Uh, not only hospitality properties, but you know, we know that retail has gone through a tremendous change you know, with, before COVID uh, because of the uh, general public uh, deciding to, to shop online and not to go to the malls and to the uh, typical foot traffic uh, storefront retail shops that they typically have been um, going to. And so there's, there's been great change, but I think COVID is just going to exacerbate all that and move it forward. And, uh, you know, because office, we, you know, there's a lot of talk that office will not be used in the same way, that there's going to be no need for central business district offices. We, we don't know if we're totally, we think that's, there will be a lower a lowering of uh, uh, demand for that, but we just don't know to what extent. I find myself in this situation, the COVID experience, when people ask me these questions, but just to say, I really don't know, because that's the truthful answer. I don't know what the ultimate outcome is going to be, but we do know that in all those different times that I've talked about, there has been a great opportunity uh, to acquire real estate. And so that's what we're preparing ourselves for right now. Uh, Billy, let's look back for a minute. You've raised a great deal of money uh, in the last 15 to 20 years through the broker-dealer communities. Um, and that would be utilizing the Reg D and the private, placements, uh, private placement offerings. Can you give us what you've learned from that experience? Yeah, I just think that, I mean, that was, of course, Paulie, I, I mean, thanks for the uh, opportunity to, to, to answer that question. I mean, I think the, the biggest thing that we've done is that, you know, we've built our relationships with di different broker dealers. Uh, and I think it's built on the basis of just good, honest business dealings uh, with uh, the principals of the broker dealer firms. They know that we're going to tell them 
exactly what's going on with the property and report the exact truth, not ever hide the ball and tell them what's going on with each property. And we've had a great experience. We've done about 31 different offerings. We've had 11 go full cycle. Uh, we're getting ready to have three more go full cycle. <clears throat> we have two more offerings that are gonna come out in the next month. So we'll be at 33 total offerings with about 14 that have gone full cycle uh, since 2006. So that's not a great number of offerings, but it represents about 200. I, I, when we're done, it'll be around $300 million of uh, total amount of cash raised and about a billion dollars in real estate required. That's wonderful. Um, and I do want to go back to that, your latest offering, because I know we, we spoke about that the other day. But how do you manage your relationship with the reps that you're currently doing business with? Well, one of the ways that we manage that relationship is like, you know, the, the, the fundamentals of reporting. Uh, we are constantly, every week, we have a report that comes out on Wednesday night. And uh, we just went to that weekly format just because we think the advisors and their clients need to be communicated with. And so we just try to update. We take some basic fundamental information, uh, right? Two of the things that we show every week are the occupancy of our properties. And we show the trailing weeks and months of occupancy so they can see the growth pattern. And then we show travel, because travel obviously very much affects uh, the hospitality industry. So we show the TSA numbers, uh, turnstile numbers from the, the safety administration, the transportation trade and safety administration that we all go through the, the security checkpoints. And this is just basically shows the numbers, the gross number of the gross number of travelers going through those uh, TSA checkpoints. And we've shown that growth. So we show that on a daily basis. And so those advisors know they're going to get that report every Wednesday night. And it's going to also show them anything that's pertinent, that's uh, germane to their property and that their advisors and that their investors would want to know. And that goes not only to the, to the advisors, but also to the new partners. I was going to say that um, knowing you for, for many years and, and showing up at conferences together at, at a few along the way, do you now, because of COVID, is it now more... Um, uh, virtual presentations that you do? It really is, Paul. I mean, you know, we had a, a dinner meeting last night, which was, I guess, the first dinner meeting that we've done since March. Um, and so it was a group of people that were with one advisor and they were comfortable getting together. And so we went and had, had dinner with them. But that's the first meeting that we've had. And obviously, we practice social distancing and this distancing. We wore a mask and things of that nature, but try to be as safe as possible. But most of what we do now are Zoom meetings, uh, and then, of course, communication, email communication, letter communication by letter, just basically written communication. If you're listening or watching The Deal Flow Show, you can get more episodes at thedealflowshow.com. You can also subscribe and follow us for future episodes as we release them. Um, you know, Paul, as I was sitting here thinking, you were asking the question about the relationships with reps, and um, he was talking about the dinner meetings and such. The digital landscape in general, how has that affected or evolved your capital raising? Is it still for you? I know COVID has affected things, and we just discussed that. But in general, as things have become more and more computerized and digital, how have y'all evolved to keep up with those technologies? 
we've really had to step up our game and and you know really get familiar with all the different uh, digital uh, digital vehicles to use to communicate with advisors and with their clients. And you know we were we thought that we knew how to use all the different tools pretty well, but we've become uh, much more proficient with, with the different formats, the different media formats that you could use to communicate with folks. And we all know who they are, what they are, and what which ones we use. And so like RingCentral, Zoom, uh, those different meeting formats, uh, our, our, our vehicles, our mediums, we use those a great deal and they're very, very, very helpful. I want to shift gears just a little bit and talk less about your specific company or deals and talk about the underlying principles or skills or strategies. You've been involved in the deal-making process for many years now. How do you prepare for the game? If you go back to the NFL as a, a metaphor again, obviously there's a lot of mental preparation, physical preparation, watching tape, all those things that happen before that. But in the deal-making process, what are you doing to prepare for the next deal that you're engaging with your team and with your counterparts that you're um, engaging with on a, on a property? It's just as very detail oriented. I mean, we have a, an, underlying, an underwriting process. I have a partner named Scott Palmer who has been my partner for many years and he's out on the marketplace looking at hundreds of deals for us to find one. Uh, and we, you know, both vet those deals. When he gets them to the point where they're, you know, to the final 10, we take those final 10 and we, we, we vet them individually. Uh, he gives me what he thinks about the properties, and I review the properties and we, we talk about the different deal points. But, you know, with, for us, JP, it's always about value. Okay, what are we buying the property for? What's our basis in the property? And we think that that's just a fundamental thing that you can't ever get away from in the real estate business. What did you pay for the property? Because what you paid for the property is going to determine how profitable that asset or that investment is going to be for the limited partners at the end of the day. And so we're, we're uh, very much keyed into those fundamentals. What did it cost you? What's the replacement cost of this property? If we had to build it today, what would it cost? Are we better off to buy this existing asset at this basis, or should we uh, go and try to build a similar asset? And uh, you know, so those those are the things. What you know, what's my debt going to cost me? You know, how much leverage do I put on this property? Because obviously, broker dealer can use very sensitive leverage, and so we so are we. And because they are, we are, and uh, so we we're very cautious about that. What's now, obviously, we're sensitive about fees. I mean, how you can you can have a great low basis in the property and then just totally put so many fees on it that it makes zero sense financially. So we're very uh, sensitive to that as well. And uh, you know, we've had long-term relationships with broker dealers, and that's because we listen to what the broker dealers tell us about what they're willing to pay and what they're not willing to pay, and what they feel like their advisors can accept and what they can't accept. And so we listen to those things. If you go into a deal and the numbers are right, are there any other deal stoppers, deal killers for you? Oh, there are. There are a lot of them. Uh, you know, I think that, um, you know, uh, a management company that's in a property, an existing hotel that uh, you can't get, uh, you have a, a long-term management uh, contract that's in place, that's a, that's a deal stopper for us. Um, you know, obviously, it, it's got to pass a whole lot of hurdles you know, the location of the property is critical. Um, we try to be close to 
what we call room night generators on our hospitality properties, close to convention centers, hospitals, colleges, things that generate room nights that will make that property uh, or cause that property to, to, to have some success. We don't want to just be another property at the corner of an intersection on a freeway. Uh, so we, we want to have a great flag. Inferior flag is another one. I mean, obviously, if you don't have a good flag, and that for us, it's Marriott or Hilton, uh, our Hyatt place. Um, so we're very cautious about the flag. But there are a lot of deal stoppers, JP. Those are just a few. I did want to ask, what, what, what about a deal that got away? Can you, can you talk about that? Was there a deal that got away from you that you just regret now? I think there's always, there's always deals that we, we underwrote too hard and probably should have been a little, a little uh, more uh, forgiving on. Uh, I can think of one in Jacksonville that I, we missed, uh, uh, that uh, Doubletree that uh, we missed on, and it uh, was a, ended up being a hugely successful project in uh, Jacksonville, Florida. And um, I don't want to say much more because you'll probably all know the property, but great property, probably we missed on that one. There's lots of properties that we missed on um, right after uh, the downturn in 2006, a lot of properties and markets that we missed on uh, that I wish that I'd have been more aggressive. But, you know, I don't have any marks on my track record either. So I, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess, you know, you thank God for unanswered prayers. I mean, maybe I didn't get that one, but maybe that was a good thing because we don't have any, thank goodness, on our track record that we put together over the last you know, years from 2006, we don't have any, any properties that have been a, a loss for our investors yet. You So the particular types of investors, you mentioned the dinner show, the, you know, pitch last night that you had dinner with an advisor's clients. What is the mix, if you don't mind sharing, what is the mix for y'all of retail versus institutional versus family office money, et cetera? Oh, that's a that's a great question, JP. You know, we're we're made. We basically 90 percent of our money comes from broker dealer, uh, the broker dealer financial services community. Either RIAs, our brokers, advisors that work for different broker dealers. Uh, five percent, you know, the, the, the balance of that ten percent would come from high net worth individuals. I know your your son was on earlier and and potentially was going to be on with us. Your this is obviously a family business still. Um, what's the future? How do you how, how do you as a leader? And I'm asking this selfishly. You know, um, you've got a couple of years on me, but selfishly, how do you direct a business and then um, bring your family in and involve them in such a way? but also the company instill and implant the values, but also allow them to evolve with new technologies, new ways of doing business. How do you make all of that mix work? Great question. Uh, the question that we get from every third party due diligence that, uh, advisor that comes in here, we have to do obviously third party due diligence for all of our different broker dealers. And they always ask us about succession. And, uh, Again, because it's important to the broker dealers, it's become very important to us. Um, but you know, in order for us to move forward into the future, uh, you know, we need to bring young people in uh, that have a vested interest in the company that want to see it uh, succeed. And so, I've uh, started training my son. He's been here with us for five years. 
that he's been working in the business. My wife works in the business. I have another son that works part-time in the business. Um, so, and then of course, I have a lot of very uh, seasoned professionals that work with us. Becky Welch, she's been with me from the very beginning. She's here with me. We've worked together for over 30 years. Uh, Scott Palmer, my acquisition partner, is uh, a He's older than I am, if you can believe that. And, uh, you know, so he's uh, we're working to find a successor for him, a person who will take his, our, his position in acquisition. Um, and so we're constantly looking for new young people to bring into the business. You know, young people have a different view about technology than, than, than I do. I mean, it's my son just naturally works on the computer just so much because he obviously used it in college and, you know, and all the positions he held before he came here. And they are just, they just take to it much more quickly than, than I would. Uh, and I think the, the kids that are Joshua's children, they're my grandchildren. They, they're they going to be much more fluent than he is, I'm sure. But, you know, it's just uh, something that we're, we're constantly working on, thinking about the future, thinking about, you know, when I step down or when Becky steps down or when Scott steps down, who's going to fill their, their spot? And we, we have, uh, you know, people that we have in position now and that we're looking at uh, to hire in the future to take those uh, individuals to the Billy, tell us a little something about yourself, professional organizations or charities that you may belong to. Oh, thanks, Paul. I mean, my, I mean, my father, as I think I told y'all, is, is a minister. He worked in prison ministry for over 50 years. And so I'm on the board of my father's ministry and have um, been on the board for several years. Well, for a long, longer than I care to mention. And so that's very near and dear to our hearts, um, working in prisons with people. Um, uh, in, inmates and because all the inmates that are in prison now are going to get out someday. And so we, we try to share our faith with those inmates that are in prison and give them a reason to stay out of prison. And so that's, that's one of the things that we do. And then I have my firstborn son that has Down syndrome. And so uh, because of his disability, I got involved with Special Olympics. And uh, so I've been um, served on the board of Special Olympics Texas for uh, many years. I I guess two years ago, I stepped. I'm sorry. Earlier this year, I stepped off the board, and uh, and so. But I have a had a great time working with Special Olympics, and they do a great job of not only working with the young people and the different Olympic. Um, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to a Special Olympics uh, event, but it's amazing. They do all the sports they have in the Olympics, these young people participate in in, in, the, in, the, um, in the events we organize. But more than that, they support the families of those kids. And so it becomes your circle of friends. Not only do you go and watch your children compete on the weekends, but you become friends with the parents of those kids. And so it's a huge support organization. We, we really love them. So you'll see on our website, those are two organizations that we support. And we have, I guess for the last, since my son was born, he's 38 now, and uh, my father's ministry is 50 years old. So we have supported those two, those two ministries for a long time. Over the years of watching other deal makers in the process, could be people you've sat next to on your side of the table or people on the other side of the table or you've been involved with, what do you believe are the characteristics of truly exceptional deal makers? 
Well, I think that it doesn't depart from what I talked to you about earlier about those the work ethic that you can see in a in a, in a man or a woman's life. I mean, their their work ethic uh, because it's reflected in the people that they have around them. And so, you know, we think that uh, when I find somebody that's honest, that's hardworking, um, I can name a few people in our industry that I just really respect uh, that are fine examples of that. And some that have already passed um, that I worked with, I had the, the good fortune to work with. Uh, but I worked with a lot of people at Hank Dickerson Company. Bill Duval comes to mind, who's the chairman of Lincoln Property Company, that I think is just exemplary uh, person that I would like to pattern my life after. Um, great guy, great deal maker, uh, tremendously successful company. Uh, so there's, but there's a lot of them. I've been for, very fortunate to work for a man like Hank Dickerson and to work around a circle of men and women in, in the industry that were great deal makers and great business people. You're listening to The Deal Flow Show or watching, and you can get more episodes at thedealflowshow.com. You can watch or listen to past episodes and subscribe or follow us for future episodes. I'm J.P. Maroney. This is my co-host, Paul Nicolini. We've got Billy Glass on with us today from Gentry Mills Capital. And, um, you know, the, the common thread, and, and especially with guys that have been around the business for a while, is your word is your bond. Do what you say. Say what you're going to do. Uh, show up. But I liked something you were talking about. You said you've never had a real big mark on any of the deals you've done where you had to go back to the investors and say you lost money on that deal. So that's, that's a positive. But when you face hurdles or setbacks or obstacles, how do you deal with that, with the mental side of that game? Well, I mean, mentally, you just have to, you have to just face what's happened um, and, and then and just report. I mean, tell people what's happened, explain to them what's happened. And then and, uh, I, I just don't shy from the facts. I mean, I've just learned that over a long period of time. My wife tells me that, you know, that <laughs> she's seen that growth in me through the years, you know, that uh, um, sometimes I'd want to tell people what they wanted to hear, which is not necessarily the exact hard truth. And, uh, you know, of course, as you get older, you realize that the truth is the best, is the best thing that you can say. And, and so you just say, you can't shy from the facts. And so I just uh, I just come out with what's happened, what our plan of attack is. I always try to always come up with a plan of attack because I don't think that there is, I don't think defeat is acceptable. And so I always come out, I try to engineer a way through, through the problem. And that takes time and it takes patience, it takes experience, it takes uh, the counsel of the you know, other great folks in the organization try to engineer a way through a problem. And, and that's sort of what we, that's what we try to do. Billy, what kind of people would you like to connect with from our audience or our guest speakers? Appreciate that, Paul. I mean, I just like to visit with other broker dealers that uh, like what I've said, um, that are interested in looking at a company that's a small company with a great track record. Uh, you look, we, we have a lot of our properties that didn't hit pro forma, but they didn't lose money for investors. Okay, and you know that's we're proud of that. Uh, we didn't just do that through the good markets. Uh, 
the first deal that we did, I told you about the Hilton Garden Inn in Houston, Texas, with I-10 and Gary Ashford. That was built in 2006. And if I'm not mistaken, 2007 was the beginning of the Great, uh, the great Depression, or what people have called the Great Depression, after the real Great Depression that happened earlier in the century. But, uh, you know, that was, uh, we, we ended up selling that property for a, a 6.7 cap, excuse me, a 6.7% annualized rate of return. We held it for five years. And uh, that was our worst return that we've had in our history. Um, you know, that's not to say that we won't have some properties that are affected by the coronavirus that uh, won't do poorly as well. And I'm not saying that we are going to be able to maintain that track record. But right now, we, we as I said before, we have sort of engineered a way to get through the situation and still generate a return and a good return for our loan departments. So I would say that a broker dealer, advisor, and RIA that's interested in, in what we do. Uh, I mean, that kind of a <clears throat> philosophy that we'd love to be, you know, visit with those types of individuals. Now, I have a project that I, I, I wanted to talk to you about that uh, if, you, if you want me to, Paul, it's a, a situation on an existing property that we have where we had the opportunity because of the coronavirus to buy the note at a discount. And so if you'd like me to visit about that, we can at some point in time, Paul. Would you like to say a few words about it now? Well, yeah, it's just a property that we have in Washington, D.C. It's a Hyatt Place Hotel, 200-room Hyatt Place Hotel. Uh, we uh, refinanced that property. We bought it in 2017. Um, we bought it at what we felt was a great price. And the property is located in the Noma District of Washington, D.C., which is north of Massachusetts Avenue. So Noma is an acronym that stands for North of Massachusetts Avenue. If you've ever gone to Union Station in Washington, D.C., you get out of Union Station, you look south, and you're looking directly at the Capitol. Uh, and, and, and the Capitol building is one mile south of Union Station. Our Hyatt Place is one mile north of Union Station. So if you could walk around the back of Union Station, go out the north side of Union Station, our property would be one mile north. That whole district north of Union Station is called Noma. Uh, and so we bought that property. We refinanced it in uh, 2000. And, um, we refinanced it. We bought it in 2017, refinanced it in 2019 with a lender. And uh, that was in, uh, I guess that was in October of 2019. And we were rocking along, got a great rate, and uh, we're rocking along. And then Noma struck in, in March. And they made the decision, that lender arbitrarily made the decision to sell our note into the market. Um, we were working with them, trying to get a uh, forbearance agreement uh, negotiated with them. They drugged their feet. We couldn't get the agreement negotiated. They ultimately sold our note, note through a broker in Chicago called Eastdale. I mean, we all know who Eastdale is. We got a package of where we would buy it. We were the high bidder and we bought it at a $9 million discount. So we bought a $50,750,000 loan for $42 million. And uh, we, uh, it's gonna greatly benefit the existing investors. And then of course, anybody else that wants to invest in that note, it's uh, gonna make a really, really nice, nice rate of return. Uh, a rate of return that I don't typically quote 
Um, but it, it, it's higher than any return we've ever made in our portfolio, it's north of 20%, but we, we feel very good. There's no guarantees for that. Obviously, we could have a resurgence of the coronavirus and we could have a slowing of the market, but we feel like if everything continues and we get a vaccine and good therapeutics and the markets open up a little bit, we think we're going to make a really nice rate of return on that project. Fantastic. How can folks get in touch with you if they would like to reach out to you? Obviously, you can call me here at our office in Dallas at 972-759-8725. Or you can talk with uh, me or my uh, Becky Welch, our vice president. Um, uh, just give us a call. We'd be happy to get back in touch with you and visit with you. Or you can go to our website at www.gentrymillscapital.com. Uh, and uh, we'd love to give us a holler, we'll get together and we'd love to visit with you. Excellent. I'm sure some of our audience will get in touch with you. On behalf of Paul Nicolini, myself, J.P. Maroney, our team here at Harbor City Capital and the Deal Flow Show team, I'd like to thank you again for taking the time to come on the show, share your wisdom, share your information, and we look forward to getting to know you better. I know Paul's got a great background with you and has said some great things. Look forward to meeting you maybe when I'm back in my stomping grounds in Texas. Um, but thank you again for coming on, Billy. I appreciate it. Thank you, JP. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, JP. Once again, if you're watching or listening, this is The Deal Flow Show. You can get more episodes at thedealflowshow.com or you can subscribe to future episodes. I'm JP Maroney, Paul Nicolini. We'll see you again in another episode very, very soon. For more episodes, visit thedealflowshow.com and subscribe.